Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I think that today we're gonna learn, you know, a thing or two about cloud commerce. And the, the guest that we have today, you know, he's uh, he has a lot of experience on building, financing, and and scaling businesses. So I think that without further ado, I'd like to welcome to welcome to the show Daniel Sachs. Welcome to the show today. Hi, Alejandro. Thank you. So originally born in Canada, how was how was life growing up there? I loved it. No, great place to grow up. Uh, and uh, yeah, grew up in Niagara Falls, Canada. Uh, great spot. So you attended Miguel, uh, Miguel. I mean, I always get it wrong and my wife, you know, gets really pissed because she's also Canadian. But Miguel University, you did political science. Is that right? Exactly. I did my undergrad at Miguel University and I'm a big uh, promoter of the school. I actually sit on the principal's advisory uh, board. And uh, yeah, it's an incredible academic uh, environment. And why political science, Daniel? Actually, great, great question. So um, growing up, my uh, I was always business oriented from like the youngest ages. I, you know, created different business ideas and was obsessed with business. And uh, it was very obvious to me that when I was going to go to school and undergrad, I was going to go uh, into a business degree. And I applied and got into business schools across the country. Um, but my parents uh, suggested, they said, because you're so business driven, um, you know, we think you should go uh, do something that's not business. Um, so I, I took their advice and ended up in uh, in a political science degree, and I thought that was a you know unique opportunity to learn um, about you know leadership, but from a different lens. So what 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 were those learnings? Yeah, I would definitely say that uh, learning uh, you know political science and and geography and and different concepts, you get the the sense of the macro um, and also the sense of the perspective of masses. So classes in sociology and psychology. Um, really give you the ability to think critically and break down problems. Um, so I think that, you know, where I, if I were to contrast my studies in business versus um, arts, uh, the arts enabled me to think about structure, brainstorming, creativity, uh, and communication, uh, whereas business, I think, gave me more of the uh, tactical execution and elements. But, you know, years later, it's funny because both myself and my co-founder, uh, studied uh, liberal arts uh, and and it's you know a lot of our early leadership team as well. So so then you actually come to the U.S. and and you went to Harvard. So why did you decide to go after that type of uh, transition? And I and I believe this was kind of like your first um, I would say uh, experience touching finance and accounting and and stuff like that. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So because I had the background in liberal arts. Um, I did want to get some uh, management experience, and I looked out at different programs, and, and this was a new program that Harvard to the Extension School was offering, and it enabled me to get um, lessons, you know, particularly in uh, different uh, different groups, and a lot of it was case study-based, and we got to learn about the tactics behind corporate finance and strategy and organizational behavior, um, and that enabled me also the kind of mindset um, to think in more entrepreneurial ways uh, throughout, throughout my time there. And and I guess the um one of the things that I that I always see in in founders, especially in in some of the most successful founders, is this pattern where they have either been at, at a consulting firm or perhaps you know they were doing investment banking or they were at a startup that was a rocket ship and then they kind of like learn the ins and out. But one of the things that that I see here that you definitely fit in into that bucket as well because 
you did an internship with Viant Group, you know, basically doing investment banking. So I guess what what kind of stuff did you learn there? Because this was the most immediate step to launching your own business. Yeah, it was interesting. So when I I came from a family business background, um, but when I uh, went to McGill, uh, you know, I looked at uh, leaders that had been really successful and, and recent grads and, and their trajectory. And, you know, essentially I came to this conclusion that um, if you want to raise a lot of capital to start your own business, therefore a background in investment banking or consulting um, is a great pedigree or background to enable yourself to then launch a business. So throughout my um, college career and even the decision to go to, to school after was to be able to get a job in investment banking or consulting so someday down the line I could raise capital. Um, and the, uh, the time in which I graduated was the height of the Great Recession um, and you know Wall Street was uh, was kind of collapsing, and there were less jobs available. In fact, barely any jobs um, in investment banking or consulting, for that matter. Um, so I did, uh, you know, get an internship uh, at a small investment bank. Um, but really, the the intent of my my going into investment banking at the time was really this idea behind getting trained so I could then raise capital. And literally, I remember I had. Um, I had a, over a thousand uh, job uh, opportunities that I reached out to across investment banking consulting, denied almost every time through most of the processes. You know, well, I did interview at some big places like a Morgan Stanley or Goldman. In the end, after you know, 08, 09, uh, none of them really ended up hiring uh, the right amount of jobs. And it was really hard to work with their recruiting. In some cases, their entire recruiting teams got wiped out. Um, but really, what that taught me was uh, you know, the art of prospecting um, and persistence. So what I ended up doing was actually interviewing, instead of just applying online or networking through uh, recruiting, uh, on-campus recruiting, I actually um, emailed the founders or um, MDs at most of the investment banks across the U.S. And what I found is actually um, I almost had a really good response rate um, or a much better response rate reaching out to the founders of boutique banks. So this is everyone from um, the head of Gleacher Partners or Thomas Wiesel or um, Scott Smith at Viant, which were all the, the boutique banks. Um, and it was because the more entrepreneurial leaders ended up really being receptive to responding to cold emails, whereas the recruiting engine wouldn't. Um, so I actually ended up getting my internship through cold emailing the, the founder of this firm, which is called Viant. Um, and he formally ran uh, the Palo Alto office for Credit Suisse. Um, so I ended up getting mentored uh, by him over the summer and, and got brought into a lot of great deal opportunities. And there, you know, I learned skill sets such as how to assess a business, um, how to advise a founder on um, M&A and positioning around the company. And, and most, uh, you know, coincidentally, I also learned about SaaS in its early days. So really the, um, the infancy of Salesforce and other um, uh, companies that were essentially solving this problem around the cloud in the very early days. And one of the things that that I also, um, you know, uh, know, you know, from experiences like this in investment banking is that you really get to identify or or do the pattern recognition of of some companies that are working out well and some companies that are not working out so well. I also understand that that one of the things that 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 you've done as well is studying other founders, like for example, Gates, Brin or Page, or even Bezos. So what have you learned in terms of pattern recognition of, of things that have the potential of success? Yeah, so, so um, actually, that's a great point. So when when Nick, my co-founder, and I uh, first met, this was years ago, we were friends through through school. Um, so essentially, we, we started brainstorming business ideas. And for many years before we started AppDirect, we wanted to look at you know what, what creates a durable business or a business that we admire. Um, and we essentially looked at um, many, many businesses. I think the list was thousands and, and narrowed it down to a few that we considered enduring businesses. And we found that they were often founder led. And in the early days, that founder defined their long term vision um, and values for the company. And therefore, when starting uh, you know, AppDirect, we, we knew we wanted to look at um, a really big, impactful uh, vision. Um, that would last many generations, not just uh, you know one product cycle. Uh, and then we wanted to define the values. Um, so you know examples of companies like that. One of the founders I really admire is uh, Izzy and Rosalie Sharp, uh, who founded the Four Seasons. Um, and essentially, in the early days, um, they were in the hospitality industry. Uh, but uh, what they really did that that defined the difference between you know Four Seasons and other hotels was they defined their vision over time and their values. 
Um, and that was really, uh, you know, enabled them to last many generations and, and align people around their vision. Um, so with AppDirect, when, when Nick and I started, we used that, um, those examples and we defined our vision and values from day one. So let's talk about the, um, you know, that, that experience with, with your co-founder, with Nick. So, so you guys started brainstorming and, and, and make us insiders for just a, for just a little bit here. How was that process of, of, you know, going from, you know, coming up with the idea and brainstorm to the moment that you finally said, Hey, Nick, let's, let's make this happen. Yeah. So it was actually many years. Um, we, from the first time we met, we started brainstorming different business ideas and, we actually went on a trip to New Zealand. Uh, this goes back to probably 05, 06. And, um, and there we were really thinking about leadership, reading a lot of books. Um, at the time, I remember Nick was reading Good to Great, and I was reading uh, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and, and Influence People. And those are two um, you know, great books that I think really shaped uh, our perspective on, uh, on business. And one of the things we, we did was look through the Inc. 500 at the time, um, and we always dreamed of uh, being on that list. Um, but you know, the early days was just, you know, studying people we admired, looking at different business models. Um, and it was less about saying, I have this, you know, idea uh, around something. It was more, how do we create a, a great enduring company? Um, and then years later, um, which was 09, um, we spent the summer together and we really noticed, uh, you know, a few trends. One was this shift to digital, um, or software as a service. Um, in which uh, would really change the way people start and manage businesses. Um, and, and at the time, um, large businesses were also struggling uh, because of the global recession. Uh, so we kind of saw those macro trends and really brainstorm around that to say, okay, how can we enable big businesses and small businesses um, with access to this new way of doing business, which was software as a service? Um, and that was really the genesis um, of the brainstorming. But it took us you know, many years to look at both the framework of, you know, what, what do we want to, what do we consider the fundamentals of the business in terms of the vision and the values? Um, and then how do we, uh, you know, create a business around that? Uh, and really the first product, which was a marketplace as a service, um, had less to do with, um, that being, you know, the, the, the reason for starting the business, it was more, that was the entry point that we saw to fulfill our vision of making technology accessible globally. And I, and I understand that the first couple of years, I mean, you guys founded this like around 2009, as, as, as you were saying, but, but I believe that the first couple of years were very tough for you guys, uh, meaning that you, you still did not nail it the, you know, that quickly, no, like right off the get go on the product market fit. So I'm sure like, no, not, not being able to, to be on the product market fit and, and, and it must be probably so frustrating and perhaps, you know, those could have been maybe like some of your darkest moments as an entrepreneur. So, so what happened during this time? Yeah, definitely. One of the things that I'd say is, you know, when it goes back to that investment banking interview uh, perspective is that we knew that, you know, you have to have to be declined a lot in order to be accepted and you, you have to put your vision ahead of all others. And going back to when we studied other uh, leaders, oftentimes people thought their ideas were crazy or impossible. So I think we, we always, you know, focus on persistence and continuity of vision. Um, but yeah, those first two years were pretty tough. We, we were in the apartment. Uh, as I mentioned, it was the height of the recession. Um, so businesses weren't spending any money. And, you know, where uh, the common approach at the time was to create a freemium product um, and then get users and then convert them to paid we actually had a totally different approach, which was let's get one big customer. Um, and then that customer will bring in network effects and help us grow. So, um, the one thing, the challenge in getting big customers from the bat from the beginning is that it probably takes about a year sales cycle to close them. And then uh, probably a year to launch. So, you know, the first three years of our business was really brainstorming around that value proposition to the first customer, then selling them and then launching them. And one of the, um, you know, let's say hardest moments for us as a business is when we found that first customer, which was a big telecom in Canada, um, it was, it, it took us, you know, two years to get to the point where we launched. And at that moment of launch, we had our initial team, maybe six to eight people. Um, we stayed up all uh, 72 hours, uh, to get, you know, the platform ready, um, launched, um, and it had expected, you know, users to come from day one and, and a ton of traffic. Um, and there was this moment when we were all there. We pressed this like button 
and played music and celebrated the launch and watched to see the volume of users coming on board. And that first uh, day after, you know, we slept, but then, but then looking at the, at the tracker, there was essentially no, no users or visitors. Um, and then we came back that week later and nothing. Um, and what we really learned is that, you know, in building any business, you have to, uh, you know, build your customer base, it, you know, the, 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 this vision of like launch and, and they will come doesn't exist. So uh, we had to go back to the drawing board and, and persevere. Um, but that was some of the best uh, moments of, uh, of, of really the genesis of the DNA of the company was learning that, hey, not everything sticks and works and you have to work hard at it to, to drive. Uh, now we have, uh, you know, millions of users, uh, but to get from, you know, zero users to, to millions takes, takes time and perseverance. So, I mean, obviously that was um, a, a big breakdown, no? I mean, you guys build this thing, you know, pour all the energy and, and then all of a sudden, you know, things are not coming as, as you had anticipated, which, which obviously happens all the time, you know, because there's not a business plan that, that is a, or business model that is saying bulletproof to the, to the market. So I guess for you guys, uh, Daniel, what was the, um, like a breakthrough moment? Like, like during that tough time, you know, there was one moment that changed everything. What was that moment? The breakthrough moment was always uh, hearing feedback from the end customers. So when I'd speak to small businesses, they would get uh, so much excitement out of the value proposition of what we had to offer. Um, so it was really about the go-to-market and how we um, package uh, the, the business in a way that um, it works. And there was also an ecosystem or a network effect that we noticed that needed to exist. So for our business in particular, we needed to be able to attract developers or applications um, and then offer them through channels to businesses. So the dynamic is what we call a multi-sided platform. Um, and, and therefore, we needed to make progress on multiple stakeholders in order to have the vision be fulfilled. So really, the encouragement that kept everything together was this concept of uh, the end user really needing uh, and, and getting value out of our service. Uh, so like I mentioned earlier, from the beginning, we, we define our vision of making technology accessible globally. And, and what we meant by that was um, having businesses uh, get value out of uh, software and solutions. And, um, and we really saw that uh, as always being important and it being the, the North Star, the true north of our business. So we really continued to listen to that end business and, and break through a lot of the pain points. And essentially, we identified hundreds of pain points in our customer experience that prevented businesses from uh, from getting the value prop that we wanted to offer. And, and it took many years, but over those years, we broke through um, many of those pain points to the point where uh, we grew. So, so the one lesson I always learned there is always listen to micro examples, and you could get you know carried away or lost in the mix of a million feedback points, but if you're always listening to the customer and addressing, you know, key issues, um, then you can make progress. And and I see that, you know, obviously your background and, and your co-founders, uh, Nicolas Desmarais uh, background, is uh, he's more on the consulting side. You know, you, you're obviously, you know, you had studied all these different things as well that don't really have to do with engineering as well as Nick. So in terms of founding team or perhaps the, the early employees, did you guys go out and, and get engineers or, or who were the first people that you got involved with the business? Yeah. So I'd say Nick and I were always entrepreneurial with a lot of intellectual curiosity. Um, so we really got excited about learning about engineering and platform and product and development. Um, but uh, the one thing we did is we recognized that if we were going to start a, a platform company uh, that was powered by great engineering, we need to get the expert or the best person in the world at it. Um, so one of the things that, uh, you know, we spent most of our time on in the early days was figuring out who our technical co-founder could be. And we actually uh, created a list similar to how I, I, um, I tried to recruit or uh, get recruited for investment banking and created a list of, you know, tons of different uh, investment banking leads and MDs. We did the same in this. So we looked at criteria of what a great technical co-founder would mean. And we did a lot of research as to the technology set. So we knew it needed to be someone who knew commerce and who knew platforms and marketplaces. And we learned concepts like, you know, multi-tenancy and um, languages like Java. So we created this whole framework and interviewed uh, literally hundreds of uh, leaders um, and created criteria. And at the top of the list um, was uh, someone called Andy Sen, who happened to work at the Salesforce App Exchange um, and had a background in commerce. 
Um, and it was just obvious based on the business we needed to make that uh, this person would be the ideal co-founder for us. So um, tried to reach him in different ways, went to conferences, um, you know, did all these different things. But in the end, it was a cold email. Um, and we sent the cold email um, to him saying, you know, dear Andy, uh, we'd love to um, we'd love to share, you know, uh, this, uh, this idea with you. And we think you have a great background for it. It's like the app exchange for everyone else. Um, and he responded the next day saying, uh, you know, dear recruiting team, would love to meet you. I've had similar ideas myself. Um, I'd love to meet you at your offices. And um, at the time we were in the apartment, so we scrambled, we got offices, uh, we sold Andy on the idea and, uh, and he joined us and, and he's still, you know, our CTO to date. And, you know, we, uh, we still, the three of us, you know, align uh, every day on the vision and the values. And um, I'd say a lot of our success was because of focusing on, um, you know, the process and methodology to find Andy um, and that, uh, you know, grateful of that, uh, that focus and team from day one. That's amazing because the thing is that normally, normally tech people, they get bombarded from requests from, you know, business, you know, potential co-founders. Uh, and, and, and it's really tough to convince them, you know, these, these engineers, because they have so many requests. So, you know, what, what, what do you think that was, you know, one, one trigger, you know, to, to get him on board, you know, maybe compared to the other requests that he was receiving? Yeah, I believe that, um, that finding the right fit, um, is, is the most important thing in, in any, in anything. Um, so it's just like finding a spouse. There could be, you know, millions or billions of people out there. Um, and two people come together for different criteria. So, you know, I think with Andy, we had the confidence we could bring him on board because his background painted such a similar story to the vision that we had. And because we were able to align on the same values and vision. Um, so I think that the key to finding a technical co-founder is making sure that you're methodical and, and, and on who you go after and that there is this true fit and vision and values. Um, so, you know, there's probably a thousand other people that we could have gone after that maybe had a gaming background or consumer background that the idea wouldn't resonate with at all. Um, so I'd say if, if you're, you know, a business founder that has a vision that's looking to bring on a technical founder, um, it has to do with that vision alignment and the way that you um, align on values. Uh, I think the other thing was that um, Nicholas and I, one of our, our core values already was humility. And the way we approached it with Andy is, is, is recognizing that there's a lot that we didn't know but we had this intellectual curiosity and passion for different concepts. So we didn't come just saying we need a, a programmer. We came saying, you know, we value your experience in multi-tenancy and commerce, and we value the perspective that you built here. And we asked a lot of questions and learned a lot from him. Um, so I think it was that, that curiosity that, um, that made, made the fit so, so effective. That's amazing. And, and as we're thinking about roles and, and, and then also responsibilities, one thing that, that is very interesting is that you guys decided to go with a co-CEO uh, structure. So why, why did you go with a co-CEO structure? Definitely. So part of our, our studying of lots of businesses uh, made us recognize that some businesses are often dominated by a sales-driven founder um, and others are often driven by a product-driven founder. And the reality of our business, because it was multi-sided, like I mentioned, or the need to to think both about the product and the, the go-to-market, we thought that it would be more effective to do this co-CEO model. And at the time, you know, many VCs and other stakeholders, um, you know, advised against it, but we had a very unique vision for why we thought that this model would work and why uh, the aspects of our business make it important. Um, and, and we stayed steadfast on that, um, on that structure. And it's a structure we've maintained today um, and, you know, both of us, including our investors and, and team, feel that we couldn't have got to where we are if it weren't for that uh, model. Um, and, and both of us have shared values and shared passions. Um, and it's allowed us to scale, um, you know, I think much faster and more effective and cover more ground because of that model. So then how do you guys, um, you know, divide in terms of, of who takes what? You know, because at the end of the day, the CEO, you know, has a a bunch of really critical responsibilities and ultimately is the last say, you know, on, on certain decisions. So, so how do you guys, you know, divide and conquer and, and the most important respect and trust each other in those departments? Yeah. So the, the starting point is shared values. Um, so we align on, you know, the same shared values and that includes uh, frameworks for how we make decisions and, and, uh, and execute. Um, but when it comes came to division of responsibility, um, Nick was always passionate about, 
product and, um, and and thinking through how the um, the product and the engineering gets to market and design um, and those elements. And I always was passionate about um, talking to customers and getting out in the go to market and the sales acumen. Um, so essentially, we we kind of divided and conquered in that Nick would. Um, you know, build the platform uh, and focus on operations. I would get out in the, in the field and 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 work on the external elements, and uh, and that's always always worked really well. And um, we have developed really deep trust for each other, and um, and we you know have uh, cadence in which we we connect t- together on a recurring basis. Um, so so the starting point is uh, you know that that passion and and, and alignment point is the, the values. Got it. And one of the things that you were talking uh, about before was that during the dark days of, of really getting to product market fit, there's a lot of discussions and a lot of um, conversations with customers to really understand, you know, like what, what will be the value, you know, that, that they will be requesting to, to, to be delivered. So, so I wanted to ask you here, what, what ended up being the business model so that the listeners really get it? Yeah, definitely. So the problem that we wanted to solve was that on one hand, you had software as a service emerging. So this was the early days of cloud, and you had companies like uh, Box, Dropbox, DocuSign, um, MailChimp, and other SaaS companies emerging. And these, at the time, they were all in their Series A or B, uh, really small market size. So now that market's a $172 billion market. At the time, if you took Salesforce out, it was a few billion dollar market you know, in aggregate. And... Um, and really, when you look at that market scale, our thought was businesses need to know about these services. But around the world, most businesses didn't uh, know about you know the, these these companies um, and didn't trust just subscribing to things online. Um, so the misconception at the time was that everyone in the world would just sign up online and, and use software. And what we believed was that software is sold, not bought. So therefore, sales reps and resellers in the channel is really important. So we wanted to build um, the global ecosystem for reselling cloud um, and do that through channel partners around the world. And in order to do that, we had to build up channel partners or people that would resell services. And then we also had to build up um, the, the inventory of apps. Um, and that was really the, the hard point. Um, and as I mentioned, that, that kind of concept is called the multi-sided platform. So another example would be um, Nintendo or Xbox where you know you could sell the gaming console through stores um, but if you don't have the best developers on it and the best games then it's a pretty useless console so we needed at the same time to build up um, great inventory of applications as well as uh, channel footprint um, and that was really uh, the, the hard part so in the early days there was this chicken in the egg and the way we solved it was by working with big brands um, like telecommunication providers and software distributors um, that were reputable and had a lot of customers already um, and enabling those brands to resell um, SaaS companies, which at the time were smaller brands. Uh, so by, by aligning that, um, that enabled us to, to find the alignment and, and ultimately scale. Got it. And, and, I, and I understand you know, that perhaps for, for something like this, for, for, for scaling and for building something you know, of, this, of this nature, it requires capital. So how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, so we've raised almost uh, $300 million in capital, uh, but a lot of that you know, came over time. So as, as you mentioned, uh, the first few years, you know, we did that very lean um, with, with very little capital. Um, and it wasn't really until we recognized um, the market opportunity um, and the ability to, to scale our platform in which we raised, uh, you know, the majority of the capital. Um, and one of the things that we, we always did um, was look at both, um, you know, how do we create not just a product, but a platform to solve our pain points. Um, and that was another lesson we learned from, scale, from, uh, from evaluating all these great businesses that we admired over many years, like the Four Seasons or um, Microsoft. Um, so when we raised capital, it was always for a purpose, um, and that could be for geographic expansion, that could be for um, product expansion um, or M&A and acquisition. Uh, but we've, we've always put kind of focus on the use of funds uh, before we raise the capital. Really cool. And, and obviously, you guys have uh, gotten on board great people, Foundry Group, Innovia Capital, Starvest. So how, how did you find these folks? I mean... Innovia Capital, I, I believe they are in Canada, so that's an easier one. But but 
Foundry Group in Colorado. That's a little bit far away from where you guys were at. Yeah, so what was interesting is we were two Canadians that started a company in San Francisco, and we actually never really pitched Silicon Valley. So a lot of people would say you need to be in Silicon Valley to find investors, um, but we actually had this idea of being under the radar, and we have really focused on selling customers before selling um, investors and operated very lean bootstrapped uh, at the beginning. And actually, the way we found our first um, investors uh, like Inovia was through signing um, our first customer, which was uh, Bell Canada, so a, a massive company in Canada. Um, and that was uh, actually through um, some investors that we, we knew, angels that we knew early on. Uh, but what we, what we really found is that this idea of um, you know, staying lean and getting advisors that you trust will then uh, grow and benefit. But at the time, yeah, Inovia Capital was a venture capital firm in Canada, um, and they were focused on a little bit of tech, but also life sciences and biosciences. Um, and it was a referral, uh, and, and they really saw that you know because we were able to sign uh, Bell Canada as you know two two young people in a, in a, an apartment, they 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 kind of latched on and said, "Wow, this is this is real, and let's let's give uh, you know invest the capital." Um, but what's one of the things that I'm really fortunate with there is that Inovia continued to scale and they've since uh, invested in great companies like Lifespeed that just went public, uh, as well as uh, Luxury Retreats, which got bought by Airbnb. They recently recruited uh, Patrick Pichet, who is the CFO of Google, and Dennis Cobbleman, the, the, the CEO of BlackBerry. So always good to see your investors grow um, as well. And then Foundry Group was fairly serendipitous in that we um, we were acquiring a company in Boulder, Colorado, um, in an all-stock transaction, um, and um, and Brad Feld was a board member, and we got to know him, uh, and this was part of our, this was, I think, just before our Series B, and as part of it, Brad invested uh, in our Series B as well as um, became a shareholder through that acquisition, um, but it's a great example how, um, you know, you get to meet people in serendipitous ways, and, and they help, uh, and Brad's been really great. In advising us on growth and strategy as well. So uh, you know, it's it's really interesting because Brad is definitely one of the the best investors out there. I mean, he's incredibly respected. You know, he he shares incredible knowledge uh, either with books or or you know with his with his blog. Uh, I think it's is is at Bradfield, uh, Brad thoughts. I think he he calls it. Uh, so I guess I guess what has what do you think makes Bradfield? Um, such a, and, and it's called failed thoughts. Sorry, uh, failed.com. What do you think makes Brad? Why? Why? Why is Brad such an Im- amazing investor? What? What are the traits that he has? I think Brad's incredibly uh, humble and is very passionate about sharing his lessons learned, including the, the hard times. And what's fascinating about Brad is I could bring up any topic, and instead of him giving the answer, he oftentimes either asks me questions that help me come to the answer on my own, or he says, here's three people that you should speak to. Um, and I think that approach, uh, you know, really helps the founder, um, think through pain points. Um, and, and I think Brad approaches his investment decisions in the same way, which is really looking at, um, data, looking at, um, you know, asking other founders, uh, and, uh, I think that's really, really encouraging. So, uh, yeah, he, he's just such a helpful person, uh, not uh, not because he gives you the answer you want to hear, but because he helps guide yourself to, to the right answer. And in terms of the, um, you were alluding to this, like, you, you guys have been quite active on the, on the M&A, right? I mean, you, you've been doing M&A since 2012. I mean, literally like a couple of years after uh, starting up the business. So, so what, what was the, um, I would say the, the strategic um, lens from where you guys were, were looking at this and and what have you learned about, about M&A? Definitely. So one of the things that we um, learned early on is that there's a lot of different ways to grow. Um, and when it comes to M&A, and this was actually um, our, our series uh, C investor was uh, Peter Thiel and Ajay Royan. And Ajay's on our board. He's the uh, managing partner at Mithril Capital. And Mithril always focused on a long-term value proposition. Um, so they were early investors in Palantir, in us and others. And, um, you know, Ajay always kind of mentioned to us that M&A is a strategy. And if you think of it strategically, there are actually very few companies that focus on it and, and that are good at it. 
Um, but you have to take somewhat of a portfolio approach because the, the typical stat is two thirds of M&A opportunities fail. Um, and so we, we took Ajay's approach and created a framework um, between 2013 and 16 um, that, that we used to acquire uh, six companies. And essentially we said, if we want to be the leaders in the space, um, we want to take our marketplace product and turn it into a platform. So we have eight capabilities and we're going to either build, partner, or buy. And we created what we called this, uh, the cloud pro- uh, brokerage battlefield. Um, and we said, here are the different components that we need and here's how we can, how we can get there. And, and we recognized that in many of these cases, partnering or buying would get us there faster than uh, building organically. Um, and we had a methodology in which we would assess different partners. Um, and therefore, you know, you asked about our capital raised. A lot of our capital was raised to, to both um, identify and acquire these businesses, but then invest in, in the platform automation of these components, um, which really has enabled us to have a massive uh, total addressable market um, and really differentiate in the, in the space. Um, so M&A really became a core strategy for us. Um, you know, as well as our uh, our uh, integration approach and, and and growth strategy. And and M and A is, is is definitely an art. So um, you know, mo- as you were saying, I mean, most of the acquisitions fail, right? And I think that the uh, the biggest challenge is integration. So, so I guess why why is integration such a beast? So I think that um, integration is definitely such a beast because you're identifying different cultures, uh, different teams, people are impacted. Um, and oftentimes the product fit maybe doesn't work out. So we have a few different ways that we assess companies. Um, you know, and one of those is an alignment of values and team. Um, but another is, uh, the product alignment. So we had a rule in that we didn't integrate, uh, or buy companies that we couldn't test the integration first. So with many of the companies that we worked with, we had already done a technology partnership where they integrated to us via API. Um, or where we could validate um, this. And when we look at a lot of acquisitions uh, that are done by companies, what they often do try to do first is go in and mess up the, the people and, and change the, the leadership and integrate the people from day one. What we always try to do is say, let's actually what we call secure the assets. So uh, essentially integrate the, the technology first, make sure that it works well. Um, and in doing so, you get to know the people um, and then over time, you can change or integrate the go-to-markets. Uh, but we really focused on integrating the technology first, continuing to enable the founder to run the business, and only integrate the, the go-to-market of the business once the founder uh, you know, feels that they're ready. Um, and, and, and in doing so, we've had really good um, you know, response rates with our, our founders that we've acquired. Um, and many of them you know, have gone on to run uh, big components within our business. Uh, so for example... Um, Emmanuel Bertolin, uh, who is uh, the head of our app devices uh, business unit, which was formerly App Carousel, um, he now runs and is the GM of our whole platform business. So um, that's been many years. Uh, and Emiliano, uh, who was the founder, uh, him and Isabel of um, J Billing, which was one of our first acquisitions, you know, stayed for for many many years uh, in the business uh, uh, plus five years. So I think we have great referenceability from our early founders, which I think is really important. So I guess I guess without going into obviously confidential stuff, you know, and stuff that you can that you can share with us, so that you know we can all get a sense of of how big AppDirect is say, today. Like, how how big is the company? So we're um, you know we're over seven hundred people uh, around the world. Um, we have millions uh, of uh, business users. Um, we really power a, a majority of the the channel sales and SaaS. Um, which is which is really exciting. So when we look at a lot of our cloud v- vendors or partners that we support, whether that's Microsoft 365, Google Apps, um, and others, um, we're a big contributor to their their channel sales. Uh, so really, you know, honored and excited about that footprint. So I guess in a, in a world, uh, Daniel here, you know, dreaming together in a world where your vision, you know, the vision that that you and Nick have uh, have really brainstormed and, and and outlined, you know, for for AppDirect, let's say that that vision is fully realized, what does that world look like? I think it's a world where when people go to work, they have access to the business services that they need very simply, and that helps them be more productive and collaborative. 
And ideally, um, you know, a lot of that would be powered by us in the back end. Really cool. Really cool. And one of the things that, that I wanted to ask you is, um, I mean, you guys have um, grown the team, you know, pretty fast. Um, and you were alluding to the number of employees now. So I, I wanted to ask you, like, what what are, for example, like uh, the traits that you really look for uh, employees? Like when you are interviewing, let's say, one employee, what is the one question that you always ask and why? Yeah, actually, great. So, so we actually introduced uh, an assessment, which was an objective way of looking at, uh, you know, talent. And we did this by looking historically at, at our team and looking at, you know, what were the traits or characteristics in the interview process that, that would be most likely for these people to be successful in the long run. Um, and what we what we do is we reward excellence in people's backgrounds. So that could be um, someone having, you know, being an expert in um, a, a development language that we're looking at, or it could be you know, going to a top school or having a background at a, a similar company. Um, it could be, you know, people who have backgrounds in, um, in, in passions in military or, um, or even, uh, you know, academics or other areas. Um, so sports, uh, so essentially we, we, we call this the aptitude assessment and it's a way that we can, um, objectively reward excellence throughout the interview process. Um, and, and that's been a, a great way for us to align, you know, our team, um, and remove bias from the interview process as well. Um, and then when it comes down to interview questions, we have, um, you know, different ways that we evaluate. So one, for example, is based on um, our, our values. Um, one of our values being humility. Um, and on the humility value, what we often do is ask questions around, um, you know, tell me an example of, uh, of something you've accomplished. And what, what I always look for there is, if the person just talks about their personal accomplishment um, and uses I a lot, then that's a sign that they, you know, don't give the right recognition to the others because any business problem to be solved, oftentimes there's a team involved. So we really look for, did they use we and did they articulate how they rallied a team around their, um, their, their solution. And, and hiring obviously all these people in such a, in such a small time frame, I think that, you know, in many instances you see how, how people, you know, like forget about culture a little bit, but, you know, in your guys' case, you know, how do you embrace and how do you think about culture? Definitely. So we defined our culture as a values-based culture for, from day one, where we define the vision, the values, and that's been the unifying element to our culture from day one. Um, and we, you know, assess uh, talent from it. We reward uh, by it. And, and that's been really the, the kind of um, rallying force behind our culture. And, and the one thing I'd say is that, um, Culture definitely evolves over time, and uh, we've done a lot from day one to track engagement. So, uh, you know, even before there were engagement tools like a Culture Amp or Peakton, um, uh, we, we we in the early days introduced a culture survey, um, and and we pulse the culture uh, every six months. And what I'd, I'd say, say is that um, we have you know, huge swings in what the key issues are. So in the early days, let's say when we scaled from a team of 20 to a team of 150 really quick, a lot of the challenges were around manager development and enablement. Um, and then we spent a lot of time addressing those issues. You know, today it's different where, you know, uh, I think a lot of the, the challenge lies in um, essentially being clear on why someone gets rewarded. Um, and we've put in OKR frameworks around that. Uh, but I'd say like throughout, um, there's different challenges that come up in your culture. And I think that uh, it's not, you know, always going to be rosy. There's going to be pain points, uh, but having the data and the focus on addressing that culture uh, for a founder is a good start. And you were talking about OKR frameworks. I mean, John Doerr just came out with, with a book about this. So how, how, do, you, how do you think, you know, and, and, and define those OKR frameworks? Yeah, definitely. So I think it's something that we actually tried to implement many times unsuccessfully. And it takes really full commitment from the leadership team and from everyone across the organization to execute on. Um, and I definitely say read the book and, and ask a lot of people how they can be successful or not at implementing it. Um, but I, 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 you know, I think if you learn about the, the concept behind OKRs, which is how do you get the company to set objectives and key results and tie those um, to corporate objectives, um, it's a great way to align um, and identify cross-functional dependencies as well as uh, really create a meritocratic culture 
where you can showcase why uh, people are succeeding or why they're not. Um, so, uh, you know, I definitely think um, there's other frameworks out there that can do this. It doesn't have to be the OKR model. Um, but what I do think is important is if you have a vision and then you have a, a corporate objective or plan for the year, um, breaking that down to the individual level so people fa- feel ownership um, over what they're doing and how that contributes to the outcomes uh, and, and, and putting a reward system around that is definitely a great way to um, align the team and and, um, and and essentially scale effectively. So so I guess for the, um, I mean, you, you, you've learned a lot, you know, building this business about marketplaces. And, and I'm sure that, that we have a ton of people listening right now that are either, you know, trying to find their product market fit or trying to build their marketplace and figuring out their chicken and the egg problem. So for those that are, you know, really in the, in the, in the process of building their own marketplaces, what, what piece of advice would you give them? Definitely. So I'd say, um, you know, number one, um, when you're building any type of business model that looks like a marketplace, so where you're, where you're reselling or selling services, um, you have to make sure that you're creating a value proposition to the end user and uh, to the different stakeholders. Um, and oftentimes I ask, you know, a business or any leader, what products or services do you want to sell? And then what channels do you want to sell them through? And that helps define uh, the enablement or the marketplace infrastructure that you need. Um, and oftentimes people say, okay, I need to sell multiple products that I'm developing, new products that I develop, third-party products. And then I also need to enable those across different sales channels. So online, in-store, um, through resellers. Uh, so really, I think you know when you build a marketplace, don't do it just for the sake of having a marketplace as a checkbox, but do it uh, you know to solve this pain point of what products you want to sell and what channels do you want to sell them through. And that's how you can unlock your revenue potential. Um, and the one thing I'd, I'd say is that many people in their first attempt to build a marketplace um, just essentially build something online and think it's going to work. Um, and, and what I would say is that while um, you know, a mar- an online marketplace is the start, you really have to integrate it to all your products and, and channels uh, for it to be, uh, for it to maximize your value prop. Um, so I would say, think about a marketplace or ecosystem in context to a business transformation, not just in context to checking a box of having a marketplace for your product online. And you were also touching base on this uh, earlier about network effects, right? So so when you see the flywheels and the networking effects uh, working properly, what does that look like? Yeah, definitely. So um, what we've done is studied marketplace models, uh, you know, over the last uh, many years and generations of businesses. And what we find is that, you know, any business is going to want to um, increase their revenue and reduce cost. Um, and ideally, in order to do that, you're um, reducing churn and creating a better customer experience. Um, so what we found is that by transforming your business to enable a marketplace or an ecosystem, um, you can then unlock better um, revenue or unlock your revenue potential um, by creating a better customer experience and by reducing churn. And one of the things that we've found, which is different in the subscription economy or the digital economy from um, traditional businesses, um, is that you know today we see with SaaS and other models, people subscribe to services, and the first sale only represents a small percentage of the overall value or customer lifetime value that you're going to attain. And therefore, you need to pay attention um, to the micro signs of that first customer. So is that cohort buying more over time? What's the experience they're getting? What sales channels are they buying from? What products are they buying? Um, So I think that the flywheel comes when you start to see um, success of, you know, one or two customers buying multiple things from multiple channels. Um, And and that I think is really the magic of of an ecosystem is that, uh, you know, in the early days, it may not be that you're generating, you know, billions of dollars, but you can see that that cohort is buying more, they're getting more value from your core product. Um, there's actually a net dollar retention, which means those people are spending more money with you over time. Um, and that over time will create exponential growth. Um, so I'd say paying attention, you know, to customers really uh, early in the early journey will then pay um, recurring dividends over time. 
Amazing, amazing. And one question that, that I typically ask the guests that we have on the show is, I mean, you've been at it for, for quite a while. I mean, we were, we were discussing this since 2009. So, I mean, it's a, you've been around the block. So I guess uh, if you had that opportunity, Daniel, where you were able to, to just have a, a chat with your younger self, let's say, you know, during the days where you were uh, the intern in this investment banking firm and, and you were, you know, brainstorming with Nick as to, you know, what the future would look like if you guys were to launch a business, if you were able to sit down with that younger self and give yourself one piece of business advice, knowing what you know now, what would that be and why? Yeah, I'd say have conviction in your in your vision. So really, you know, only you uh, or your co-founder know your vision. And the, the, the job I think of a founder is to just have strong conviction. And there are many times throughout the life cycle, right? We've been at it for 10 years where, you know, it would have been easy to quit or sell um, or give up. Um, but if you have that conviction and persistence in your long-term vision, you'll always find a way to persevere. Um, and I believe that, you know, while we've been at it 10 years, which is a long time, I think we're only at the beginning of the journey. And, you know, I, I hope in, you know, 30 year, or 40 years from now, um, we're still, uh, you know, on this same journey, um, helping uh, make technology accessible. So, so I, I, I would just go back to that, that same, same focus of, have conviction in your vision, um, and and that should guide you to persevere through any challenges along the way. I love it. And for the folks that are listening, Daniel, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, feel free to reach me at dan at appdirect.com. Amazing. And any social media handles that you use? Uh, email is, is probably the best, but you can also find me on uh, Twitter at Daniel H. Sachs. Fantastic. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Great. Thank you, Alejandra. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.